0: Good morning and welcome everybody to Encounter. Again, uh, my name is Dirk and I'm the preaching pastor here at Encounter Church. It's good to be with you, everybody. We're in part two of a series that we're calling Move the Mountain. In part one, last week we kicked this off and we said that God has moved the mountain from fear fear. To faith. And today I think that he's going to move this mountain uh, called debt. Now it's not the kind of debt like a financial debt that we're going to talk about this morning, but the similarities between the two are striking. Uh, For example, I was in a a car dealership earlier this week getting my oil changed and I was talking to the owner of the dealership and that call came in. We did that thing where you can hear like one end of the phone call and not the other obviously because he was on the phone. And what I could figure out, but what the caller was having a hard time figuring out, was they were not about to buy the car. Uh, he was trying as best as he could, as persistently and as gently and as courteously as he possibly could to tell them that, that they just like, couldn't afford the car. The problem was too much unpaid debt. Uh, Now, he hung up the phone, and I pressed him on it further, and he was saying, like, listen, this is the deal. Like, they had a credit score of, like, 400. And if you don't know, like, much about this, it's, like, 350 to 850, so 400 is not, like, super great, And uh, and he goes like, there was just so much unpaid debt that they just, our lender wouldn't even work with them. You had to be like a 600, whatever numbers, math, doesn't matter. Um, And he goes, the interesting thing about that though, he goes, even if they like found an 800 to co-sign and to like carry that burden uh, along, it probably still wasn't going to work because again, because of the mountain of unpaid debt that was now shared between the two of them. Now, I kind of like putting this sort of thing together. I'm initially like repulsed at the idea that a person could be so quickly, so efficiently reduced down to just a number, a 400, a 600, an 800, like like whatever it is. But then it like strikes me, right? In prep for today, we do that too. In fact, the, the premise of the NBC sitcom, The Good Place, any fans? no there wasn 't in the first either oh there 's a few awesome cool um, is built on this same idea that everything we do either like puts us into the hole, builds up that mountain of debt on top of us just a little bit more, reduces the number, or anything that we do might help us get out of that hole just a little bit and and boosts our number. So that when we're lying or when we're gossiping or when we hurt somebody, even if it's an accident, like the number ticks down and we find ourselves that much more in the hole. And every good thing that we do starts to like, dig ourselves out of this mess, right? Every time we cover a shift at work or babysit somebody's kid or help somebody out or tell the truth even when it's difficult, like we start moving out of that hole. And we start to like delude ourselves into thinking, well, that's, that's kind of the religious life. That's kind of the spiritual life. That, that is a religious life, just not this one. <laughs> like if that's your idea about how God works, like that's karma. I mean, that's a number of things. That's not that's not the way of Jesus. That's not Christianity. And so we're going to see this morning God move this mountain of debt, these these ways that we find ourselves getting stuck really on the ledger board on the wrong side of everything. And just help us like come to terms with really what amounts to a completely irrational way of living, irrational life that, that I don't think Outside of the supernatural gift of God, we we don't have a choice. We don't don't have a way that we can figure this out. So I just want to do this as best as I can with a couple of stories. The first one is a story about, uh, it was in the 90s, and you know that because he was a travel agent. And he was, that was a joke. I use travel agents all the time because it's super confusing. Now I feel like I'm going to get an email. Okay, anyway, um, 90s, he's a travel agent. But what he's realizing is that not everybody... Not everybody is, uh, is content eating a hamburger from McDonald's and staying at a Holiday Inn on vacation. I mean, I am, but not everybody is. And so he decides he's going to strike out on his own and he's going to start what he calls this adventure tourism. And what they're going to do is they're going to tour the sites of the wonders of the ancient world. And so he starts by like digging into this thing and he realizes that most of them are just rubble. There's really not much left. But there's one of them that's, that's being rebuilt, being reconstructed, like as they speak. And, and uh, it's the hanging garden's In of Babylon, in modern day Iraq. So it's the 90s. He kind of puts this plan together. He starts looking at chartering planes, getting local authentic um, uh, dwellings, like places to stay for the people, for the guests that come along this thing. Um, Local guides to tour around the sites. I mean, this thing is going to be perfect. Going to be perfect for the adventure tourists he realizes the cost, the price tag attached to a trip like this is initial startup of like a million bucks, seven figures. Not having anywhere close to those kind of resources, he's put in touch with a venture capitalist out of LA, a guy who loves the idea and fronts the money. And so he books the charter planes, the accommodations, the guides, everything that he needs. He starts planning everything out after he shells out all that money and figures out about how long, about after how many years is the break-even point, and then they're going to start making money after that. And he's so excited to do what he loves to do. Except for it's the mid-90s, and Saddam Hussein is president of Iraq And overnight, he decides to close the borders to foreign tourists. And overnight, not only his dreams evaporate, but his nightmare becomes the reality. Because he realized he he already spent all this money. And now he's finding himself on the wrong side of the ledger board. On the wrong side of everything. Covered under this mountain of debt. And he's freaking out. Because he realizes he has to pay this thing back. Or he should pay this thing back. And it's going to cost. It's going to cost him according to his calculations. He's figuring it out. $5,000 a month over the next little over 16 and a half years. Assuming that's interest free. Why would anybody go for this thing? And He's up at night. He's nervous sweating. He's living out his nightmare. Okay, and the other story is of a girl, a late teenager who fights with her parents all the time and they fight with her because they don't like the music that she listens to or the nose ring she came home with or the clothes that she wears or the people that she hangs out with. And one time she blows up at them. I hate you both. And she runs away. She runs to the only place she knows where to go because she grows up in Traverse City, Michigan. And one time she did a youth mission trip to downtown Detroit. So she goes there, hops on a bus, gets to Detroit, finds the wrong, the absolute wrong crowd there. A story unfolds of substance abuse, drugs, and alcohol. She finds people that will pay her for her company. And at first she's living the high life because she, she has this sense that like, yes, they were keeping me from all the fun in my life. They were the problem all along. And then as soon as she gets sick, she's gone. And she surprises how, she's surprised how quickly people don't want her company anymore. How quickly her friend pool dries up and she's sleeping on a sewer grate in front of one of those big stores, because at least that's where it's somewhat warm in the middle of winter in Detroit. Sleeping is probably the wrong word for it. She's sleeping as best as a teenage girl can in a big city at night, and dark rings start under her eyes, and her cough worsens. She remembers back home years earlier And she calls three times. Three times it goes straight to voicemail. The third time she leaves a simple message Mom, Dad, it's me. I think I want to come home. I'll be on a bus tomorrow afternoon. If you're not there, I will completely understand. I'll stay on and keep heading north. She woke up one day and she finds herself on the wrong side of everything, buried under a mountain of relational debt. This morning, we're gonna read a passage. And as we do, I want, us to, I want us to hear the heart of the person who wrote these words. And so I'll tell you that 22 years before he wrote these words, he found himself on the road on that journey because he was, he was a person who was passionate about arresting Christians, persecuting Christians. We're going to hear the story from Saul turned Paul. When he was so passionate about hurting and arresting and worse christians the followers of jesus he was actually on the road carrying papers way outside his jurisdiction to arrest some new christians in the city of damascus and heading there it was jesus himself that shows up on that road and says why are you hurting me so badly and what he did he realized that day just how big of a mountain was now sitting on top of him just how much he was on the wrong side of everything. And in fact, it messed with his mind so much. This is how you know he gets it. Because his, his mind like melted down as he tried to understand why in the world this God would allow him to continue breathing, let alone employ him into his service. And so he goes off in the wilderness for three years just to come to terms with the whole thing. And coming back 22 years after that encounter he sits down and he writes a letter to a group of Christians whom he has never met before. And it's the group of Christians living in the center, in the thick of it all, in the city of Rome itself. And because he's never met them, because he doesn't know what their problems are, he doesn't know what their issues are, he doesn't know what their questions are, he's just writing to them his story of belief. We have the closest thing in the Christian Bible to what could be considered a purely theological text. And, and now here, he lays down for the people in, in these like thick, heavy terms, just what this thing called the gospel is all about. Uh, follow along if you'd like. There's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Otherwise, the words are going to be on the screen behind me. This is going to get thick. So I want you to hang with me as best as you can. It starts off in Romans chapter 3, where he goes, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness, we're going to say that's like the justification, that's the acceptance is the word we're going to use there. The righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, justification, this acceptance is given through faith, in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Difference in the background. These are the, the two systems of belief. There's this system of law and this system that, that has a way of producing the gift of faith. And then in verse 23, to clarify where we all are, no matter who you are, your background, or the good things or the bad things, or the score that you've come here today. Verse 23, for we, for all, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all living underneath that mountain, all on the wrong side of everything and are justified. We're made accepted freely by his grace as the other system through the redemption, through the cost or the price that was paid that came by Christ Jesus. Uh, Let's just finish it off. Hey, verse 27, where then is boasting? Like Like, where, where's the humble break in all of this? Where's the where's the coffee and word that I'm going to gram uh, this morning? Uh, he goes, it is excluded, <laughs> because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified apart, is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So you could follow along that whole mess. Uh, if you feel like you could brag about anything, we probably don't completely understand it, which is okay because it's an absolute ludicrous system to begin with that none of us would ever have come up with on our own. So, what I want to do, I want to kind of break it down, explain it, because I think this is so important to Paul. It's so important to, to those two stories that I shared earlier. It's so important, I think, to every single one of us to leave today and to so fully get. This thing that makes so little sense. It starts off with a thing called, um, we're going to call it acceptance. It starts off with this, Paul calls it righteousness before God. He calls it justification. Really, it's just this, this longing and this need to be loved and to be beloved by God. To, to feel like we're adding value in some kind of a system. To to feel like God not only likes us, but loves us. To to actually prefer our company over nobody. That's righteousness. That's justification. That's the acceptance that we're all longing to strive for. And for most of us, and for how the entire world works back then as today, how we get there is by the hustle. I don't have a better word to describe this. It's just, it's just work hard. In fact, uh, the, the level that we work, the amount of pressure that we put on the gas pedal is the amount of acceptance, is the amount of righteousness, justification that we get. I mean, this is just ingrained in us in so many different ways. The United States military is probably this in its most pure form because every single person is given, quite literally, a rank. And every one of them know exactly where they stand in line of the acceptance, where they stand in the work of the hustle, because they all understand how hard they hustle, how well they hustle determines the amount of acceptance that they get. Everybody inferior to them salutes them when they walk by and obeys their orders. Everybody superior to them, they salute and they obey the orders of. Uh, The business world, corporate America, is like different but just a tiny bit more subtle. Ford Motor Company, this is awesome. I found out um, they they have a a employee grade scale where every employee for the company is given a grade one to 27. So like part-time clerks assistants all the way to the chairperson of the board, like all the way up. And uh, along that grade system is not only like compensation and benefits and stuff like that, um, but also like fringe benefits that come in in a certain way. So like, for example, at grade 9 for Ford, it is where at their main headquarters, you get a parking pass to park in the good lot, right? At uh, grade 13, you get an office with a window, wait for it, which means you can have plants in your office, which is pretty sweet. Grade 16 is when your office gets upgraded and you get one with a private bathroom. I just thought that was awesome. Everybody at Ford, when I'm saying gets the hustle. They get the level of acceptance. They get the level of reward that they're experiencing and living out is directly correlated to the amount of work, the amount of hustle that they impose. I'll just be honest and say often I find myself living this exact thing out Oftentimes, I find myself saying things to my kid when she comes home from school and, and shows me a paper and it's like all stars. And I'm like, perfect job, I'm so proud of you. And I just, I just connected, right, unfairly. That level of acceptance, that level of pride that I have for her is directly connected to the amount of hustle that she exerted. I'm so proud you scored three goals. And we do this we do this with God when we tell ourselves that if we, if we did our devotions, if we prayed enough last week, then God's happy. And if we didn't, he's probably disappointed. And we link the spiritual hustle to the amount of acceptance that we believe God has in us. It's, it's Lent time, so a lot of us have given things up for Lent, which is an awesome way to remember the infinite sacrifice of Jesus by giving up chocolate for a month. That's all right. I do it too. It's, it's cool. It's a good way to remember. But then it's like you, you dig into a, a trail mix, and then suddenly you bite into something sweet, and you're like, ooh, there was definitely chocolate in that. Better luck next year, right? Like somehow I nullified the sacrifice of Jesus by eating chocolate this month, you know, for these 40 days, right? And what we did, again, when we feel bad for something like that, again, We take whatever system that God created and and, and asks us to live into, we overlap it with how the world works and attach it and say, no, 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 God, it's, it's the amount of hustle that I have that proves my acceptance before you. This whole system of the hustle and the acceptance, Paul looks at this entire thing and he just calls that the law. It's the law of the hustle. It's just how everything works. It's how it worked back then. It's how it works today. Paul realizes what Paul was confronted with face-to-face on that road to Damascus is what happens when you find yourself on the wrong side of everything, every breath that you took, every action that you did, just dug yourself into a hole deeper and deeper, deeper until there was a mountain of spiritual weight of debt on top of you. And Paul all of a sudden realized, no, 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 no. He allowed me to live. He, in fact, chose me and changed me in that moment, this can't be how God runs his world, how God runs this system. It doesn't make sense from what I know about God and what he has done in my life. On top of that, with this system, I never really know where I stand. and never get the answer to that question of how good is good enough, what my score is, and just exactly what adds to it and subtracts to it. No, no, this thing breaks down so, so quickly. The No, that's what Jesus taught me. He taught me a different way. He taught me this new system, this new way, this new paradigm. He goes, it starts with the same way. It starts with acceptance. It starts with that fundamental need to belong. It, it starts with that being adored, being cherished, feeling like you're adding value, God loving you, God preferring your company over nothing. It starts in that same place. Except, except what I know about God is that he picked me, he chose me, and then he changed me. It wasn't started with me. It wasn't my hustle. It wasn't anything except for God in God alone, acting in me, acting in my life. And it was God's movement, it was God moving first that chose me and changed me. And the thing that it produced was life, was faith, was this gift, and that whole system we call grace. Law, the law of the hustle and grace. And that's the part, that's the part that we don't get because it doesn't make any sense. But that's the part when the adventure tourism agent Drives over to the office of the venture capitalist and he's rehearsing his speech in his head about how he's he's got a plan and it doesn't make sense right now, but he can pay back the money if only it's it's interest free and at and at five thousand dollars a month he's unemployed, he doesn't know where he's gonna get it, but but five thousand a month after sixteen point six 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 repeating uh, months or he, he'll years I mean, he'll eventually come up with enough money and he could he could pay back every time. And he goes into the office and he starts explaining what happens, and the guy laughs at him because he says, I'm not a banker. I'm not calling in a note. I'm a venture capitalist. I invested in this idea. I'm a speculator. You win some and you lose some, kid, but you had a good idea. You didn't know the borders were getting shut down. We're going to chalk this one up to a loss, and then we're moving. We're moving on. And suddenly it's like, it's like this mountain moved He was on the wrong side of everything and it all was wiped away. That's that grace thing. And the girl riding the bus back from Detroit to Traverse City and and making stops along the way, she wonders, looking down at her fingernails, if her parents are going to notice the tobacco stains and ask what other substances she's taken in the few years that she's been gone. And she wonders if they even got the message that she left or if they were out of town or on vacation. And she wonders, most of all, if anybody is gonna be at the terminal when the bus stops in, because she knows the mountain of relational debt she has found herself in, and that everything is stacked against her, and she and she starts to wipe off the makeup she has caked onto her face to cover up the dark lines where she hadn't been sleeping at night, and she realizes it doesn't really matter anymore. There's no There's no pretense in, in pretending to be someone that she's not anymore. And she pulls into that bus terminal and she sees 40 people, 40 aunts and uncles and cousins and her mom and her dad and her siblings all wearing these dumb party hats and noisemakers. And her, and her 90-year-old great-grandmother is in a wheelchair underneath a banner that says, Welcome Home. And she realized, friends, the mountain of debt has been paid and moved. She was on the wrong side of everything. But that's how grace works. Grace changes Everything. And that grace doesn't make any sense at all. It's this system that, that God has instituted that, that He lives by, that He asks us to live by, that doesn't make any sense in this world. This, this system that, that says, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose. Not dutiful Esau, who who follows the rules and is the firstborn and is the the chosen person, no no, God picks not dutiful Esau, but but lying, conniving, deceiving Jacob, because after all we 're all jacob that 's grace grace is this is this upside down kind of System whereby God bestows supernatural strength on a delinquent man-child named Samson. That's grace. Grace is what picks the ruddy little shepherd boy to be the king over Israel. Grace is what gives divine wisdom and wastes it on a philandering king like Solomon. Grace is Jesus on the cross Next to a murderous thief dangling nearby. A thief who has no time to commit his life or the last 10 minutes of it. A, a thief who can't get baptized or join a Bible study. A, a thief who asked for nothing more than to simply be remembered when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And it's grace that has Jesus say, I'll not only remember you, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's that upside-down kind of grace that makes no sense to any of us. But that's the grace that God chose to rule his kingdom by and we're residents in that kingdom. And the movie The Last emperor. It's a, it's a movie about the last emperor of China. It's this boy that gets coronated. And at his coronation, he has literally 1,000 servants that swear their allegiance to him and to do anything possible uh, to serve him. And so he, he leads this, uh, this magical life of luxury. And one time his brother comes to him and asks him the question, but what happens when you do wrong? And the boy emperor turned to his brother and said, it's simple. When I do wrong, someone else is punished for it. And so he turns, he goes, let me show you. And he knocks over a jar and it hits the tile floor below. And and as it shatters, one of the servants is grabbed at the other room and beaten. When he does wrong, one of the servants pays for it. And it's this upside down kind of grace that inverts that system. As Paul says in our text earlier that the grace isn't free, the grace has a cost, but the cost isn't paid by us. It's grace that takes that system, twists it upside down and says, no, no, no. When the servants do wrong, the king pays for it. When I screw up, When I add to the mountain of spiritual debt, when I I find myself on the wrong side of everything, it's the king of the universe who bears the weight and is punished for it. It makes no sense. But that's grace. If, if, if If you can believe this, grace has, as its greatest Old Testament king, a murderer, and an adulterer, David. Grace has, as its de facto head of the church, a man who cursed and swore up and down that he never even knew the man Jesus. Grace has, as its greatest missionary in history, a man picked, chosen, and changed from out of the line of the Christian torturers, Paul. That's grace. Grace, as Philippians says, means that there's nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore. No amount of spiritual exercises, no amount of seminary classes or Bible studies, no amount of righteous crusades for a good cause. And grace says that there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. No amount of pride, no amount of prejudice, no amount of racism, no amount of lust, no amount even of murder. Because if you can believe this, friends, this is what it's like to live in the kingdom. That, that you are loved as much as an infinite being could possibly love. That's grace. And now it's decision-making time. Because as many of you know, today is Selection Sunday, and you may have caught a little bit of the bug called the March Madness. That's okay. Safe space. Can admit it. It's, it's weird how it seems like these games, the most important ones, they're all important, but, but like the are really, really riveting, important ones. It seems like these games always come down to like one 18-year-old kid standing at a free throw line with seconds left on the clock. And, and so there's, there's two pictures as he's standing there. One as the camera zooms in real close so you can see every beat of sweat on his face and every, every pore of anxiety that he exudes because he knows what's on the line. He knows if he misses these two shots, then he is going to be the scapegoat of his campus and probably of his whole state. He knows instinctively that if he misses these shots, he will be in counseling 20 years from now, reliving this exact moment. But he also knows if he makes them, He's going to be a hero, an instant legend. Trending on Twitter before the ball comes back down to earth. He knows he could run for governor and probably win. As Yancey tells this story, he says he was watching the kid at the free throw line with worry just across his face, dribbling twice, raises the ball up. And the the next team, the other team calls a timeout to try to get in his head, to mess with him. 20,000 fans waving banners, trying to distract him. Yancey said, I had that picture of a kid, a worried 18-year-old in my mind as I took a call and I stepped out of the room. Now the call took longer than I thought it would. And so he came back and the next thing he saw wasn't a worried kid at the line anymore, but was that same kid riding on the shoulders of his teammates, drenched head to toe in Gatorade. He didn't have to ask what happened, but friends, get this: Grace asked, "Does it even matter what happened?" And so the question that I want to ask you this morning is: Which picture—the worried kid? at the free throw line, with his life and future at stake, anxious ridden over what comes next? Or the kid riding high on the shoulders of his teammates drenched in Gatorade, riding victoriously? Which picture best describes your spiritual life? Which picture do you believe is how God relates to you? Does he want you nervous with what's coming up next? Or does he say, win or lose, make it or miss it, it does not matter because you are mine and you are accepted and you are loved and you are beloved. You are cherished and you are adored, because when I see you, I see the acceptance that I have, the righteousness that I have of Jesus Christ himself. So ride high on those shoulders because I have won victorious. Whether you make it or miss it, whether you live covered in the mountain or free from it, A question I want to ask friends is this week when you parent are you going to parent out of the philosophy that the law of the hustle determines the level of acceptance or it's grace? When you act and react to your boss and employees, how are you going to act? How are you going to live out? And most importantly when you approach God Are you going to approach God as one victorious, celebrating God who moved the mountain or still living in fear from it? Listen, it's up to you this week and this month. If you want to experience grace, if you maybe have been experiencing grace for the first time or the first time in a long time, I would love if you join the team in the back by the prayer banner, they just want to celebrate what God is up to in your life, because He is He is choosing you and He is changing you. I want you to stand up. Let's pray together. Gracious God, it's Your action first. You, Your movement first. And God, everything that we do, our lives lived. Are but a note of gratitude, a thank you back to you. God, may we live into this upside-down, bizarre, strange kind of system called grace this week. God, may we act and react this week as if a mountain had just been lifted off from us. God, may we celebrate The fact that we are so broken and that we are so sinful and we are so shallow and that we are constantly finding ourselves on the wrong side of everything, Jesus, but it's your grace that changes everything. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.